Good evening and welcome back tonight. So glad you've chosen to be here with us. We have several who are gone tonight, or young people are gone for the area-wide youth series, and uh, I think it was Double Springs that they were going to tonight, but we hope they have a safe trip. Appreciate all of the work that they do in, in uh, serving the Lord as young people and the good examples that so many of them set. Uh, Keith wanted me to remind those that have the... Uh, information in regard to lads to leaders uh, to give it to me and I'll put it on Sandra's desk but if you have that have not turned it into key if you'll remember to do that at the end of the service then we would be more than happy to try to take care of getting that in the right spot if you have a Bible tonight turn to the book of Joshua I mean not Joshua Judges let's go one chapter uh, one book uh, ahead I'm still back last year that, that's all last year kind of stuff we we want to move into this year. We want to get into the book of Judges. We were uh, began our study last Sunday night, of course, in the book of Judges, and we will continue tonight in chapter 2. If you're looking at it, and if you've read it, you may notice that chapter 2 continues somewhat of the introduction of the book. Uh, it starts there in chapter 1, but bleeds over into what we know as chapter 2, being the introductory part of the book. The land's been subdued, the people are taking possession, and uh, in chapter 1 we learned about the compromise. They failed to uh, drive the people out, they made uh, uh, covenants with them, they uh, made some of them slaves, they just, uh, some of them, they just let them alone and nothing ever happened to them, and so uh, we noted all of that there in chapter number 1. Later in chapter number 2, we're going to, to find and encounter a repetition of Joshua's death. It's recorded in the book of Joshua itself, but we see uh, that reiterated for us again, and it's reiterated, and then it leads right into the other leaders and the, 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 the downfall, if you will, of so many of the things that happened in uh, uh, Palestine, in uh, the Promised Land, at that time. Tonight, what we want to focus on is the first five verses of chapter number two. There's a lot uh, that is found there, and, and, and as I was preparing the lesson, I just kept seeing things that I wanted to bring out, and some way you have to bring it to a close for one particular lesson. But tonight, we'll look at some things that are found in the first five verses of chapter number two of the book of Judges. Beginning there in verse number 1, the Bible says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochum, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. As we look at that, again, there are a number of things that are there, but let's just jump right into it, and we'll notice what is said here at the last part of this passage. Matter of fact, it's stated earlier there as well, but we find the children of Israel at a place named 
Bochum. It looks like Bochum up there on the screen, but it's actually pronounced Bochum. And so as we look at it, the question is, where is that? Where is Bochum? And so if you started looking on a map, on, on many of the maps that I looked at, there's no Bochum that's mentioned. Some of them had a place that was marked on there and, and called Bochum, but many of them didn't have any place located. And so my curiosity got to me, where is this place called Bochum? Well, I began to do some research and began to do some thinking about it and tried to determine exactly where it was. I remembered that the children of Israel, when they crossed over the Jordan River, they were close to Jericho, but they made their first encampment at a place called Gilgal. If you go back to Joshua chapter number 4, you'll find uh, the story there of how that they, they set up the camp there at Gilgal when they crossed the Jordan River. Later on in Joshua, the book of Joshua, chapter number 18, we find that the children of Israel moved their encampment from Gilgal up to a place called Shiloh. And according to the book of Joshua, chapter 18, at verse number 1, at Shiloh is where they set up the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the tent that had been constructed while they were back in the wilderness. It was the place that uh, uh, the, the, the altar, the, the covenant, the altar of the covenant was, was placed. It was there that God would come down and meet with the children of Israel on a, a regular basis. And it was there that, all, that, that sacrifices were made and, and all of those things were preceding the temple that would later be built by Solomon, David wanted to do it. God said, you can't do it. Solomon eventually was able to build a temple in Jerusalem. But prior to that time, the tabernacle was set up at Shiloh. And that became an important place in Old Testament history. There are a number of references to Shiloh. And you'll find that uh, many of the things that are said in regard to Shiloh I uh, have to do with, with uh, uh, the, the people there in the book of Judges as well as later on in the book of 1 Samuel. If you go to the book of Judges, chapter 21 at verse 19, you find the Bible says there was a yearly feast at Shiloh. Wherever they were, after they had left and settled in their property, there was a yearly feast where people traveled. They had to come back and meet at Shiloh. Later on, they would have to go to Jerusalem three times a year, but Jerusalem, if you remember, hadn't been conquered yet. And so Shiloh was the place. If you go to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 1 at verse number 3, you'll find a man by the name of Elkanah, who was the husband of Hannah, and according to 1 Samuel chapter 1 at verse 3, the Bible speaks about how this man, Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. And so that was an important place. And if you think about it, go back and study it, not only is Shiloh a place, but it also has reference to Christ in the New Testament as well. But again, that brings me back to my question. You say, preacher, you talked about Gilgal and you talked about Shiloh, but I thought you asked at the beginning of this thing, where is Bochum? 
Where's that place at? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly where Bochum is. But here's a good example of taking what is said in other places in Scripture to help us determine the exact meaning of the thing that is in front of us. I believe there's a clue to be found in chapter 2 at verse number 5. When the people were at Bochum, what did they do? Then the Bible says, they called the name of that place Bochum, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. That's an important part. They sacrificed there to the Lord. Do you remember back before the first of the year when we were studying back in the book of Joshua, one of the last lessons on the book of Joshua we had was a title, a lesson entitled On the Road to Ed. And we remember how the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh were dismissed from the assembly and they started home to their land that was on the eastern side of the Jordan. Before they crossed the east, uh, over to their own property, they got to thinking about it and said, you know what, there may come a day when, when folks say that we're not a part of the children of Israel. When we're not a part, when we, when we don't have any lot or any part with all of the things that they do, and so they stop there, and the King James Version gives the name, calls it Ed. They call that altar and the place where it was Ed. But they built this, this big altar. Well, when the people, the other tribes, heard about it, this is going back to that other lesson, when they heard about it, they were upset. So upset that they gathered back at Shiloh, the Bible says, and they came to the conclusion they were going to war against their brethren, against the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh because they had built an altar somewhere else. If you recall, they did send a delegation before they sent the soldiers. There was a discussion that was had among them in the book of Joshua, chapter 22. And I want you to listen to some of the things that are said there in Joshua chapter 22 at verse number 12. And when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people gathered at Shiloh to make war against them, verse 22, go drop on down, they have been talking to them, and here's the answer. The mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows, and that Israel itself knows, if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or, if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. What was the point that Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh was trying to make, we build an altar, but we didn't build it to use. We didn't build it on which to sacrifice things. Drop on down to verse number 26 of Joshua chapter 22. Therefore he said, Let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, 
But to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in His presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. You keep on going on, and, and they make mention in verse 28, Behold a copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice. They're not going to sacrifice on this one, but they are going to sacrifice in the presence of the Lord. Verse 29 says, Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away his, this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. You see... God had instructed them that the only place that they could offer the sacrifices and the burnt offerings and so forth was on the altar that was in the presence of God at the tabernacle in Shiloh. Now let that sink in for a moment. The only place they could offer sacrifices and be pleasing to God was on the altar in the presence of the Lord in the tabernacle, at the tabernacle in Shiloh. They made a big deal about it. They were going to go to war because somebody made an altar to sacrifice somewhere else. Rather than being offering sacrifices at Shiloh. Now what does that have to do with anything? Do you remember a clue there in verse number 5 of the book of Judges, chapter number 2? After the Lord had spoken to them, they cried, and what did they do? There they sacrificed. There they offered sacrifices. They just made a big deal not too long ago about not doing it anywhere except at Shiloh in the presence of the Lord. Now they're offering sacrifices. Reckon where that was. You see, the best conclusion that we can come to based on what we read in Scripture is they, Bochum is at Shiloh. Bochum is at Shiloh. The word Bochum simply means weepers. Here was a place of weeping. When God spoke to them, the place became a place of weeping. Matter of fact, if you look there in verse number 4, the Bible very clearly says they wept. Bochum is simply the place of weeping, the place of weepers. And that place at that time evidently was at Shiloh. Now, why again did we go through all of that? I know that was a long way around. But sometimes there are things that are in Scripture that we may have questions about. What in the world does he mean? For example, in the New Testament, we read in the book of John, chapter 3, verse 16, that Jesus himself says, Whosoever believeth in me should not perish, but have everlasting life. Does that mean that all I need to do to have everlasting life is to believe in God? 
Well, what about what James says? That even the demons believe and tremble. It'd be hard, you'd be hard-pressed to get a demon, one who is uh, uh, in the service of the devil, uh, you'd be hard-pressed to get that person not to believe in God because they recognize God. Well, are they going to be saved? No, there was a place prepared for the devil and his angels, the ones who were with him. Well, is there something that I have to do in order besides believe? Well, the Bible speaks about repentance. If I don't repent, I'm not going to be saved. How do I know that? Jesus said it. Luke chapter 13, verse number 3. And that same Lord also said, He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. You see, I take the totality of what God's Word has to say to come to an understanding of it. Same's true here as where is Bochum at? Well, we can't most on most maps look and say, Oh, right there it is. Well, it was a place of weeping. But when we look and we see what they did, they sacrificed. And we understand that still at this time, these people, they, these people, they, they were still holding on to God enough to know where their sacrifices needed to be. It hadn't been that long until they were about to have a war over it. And so I'm convinced that they still recognize that even at that point. And so again, as you go through Scripture, there are times when you'll run across things that you may wonder. But the point is, take the totality of what God's Word has to say before you come to any conclusion on any matter. And when we've done that, and we have the totality of God's Word, then we know that we have the truth on our side. Well, what are some of the other things that that we need to see here as we look at Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. I believe we need to understand that they had a visit from the angel of the Lord. As a matter of fact, if you go back there into Judges chapter 2, the Bible begins this way, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum. They had a visit from the angel of the Lord, but my question tonight is, who is the angel of the Lord? The word angel, as you know, and we've studied not too long ago, literally means a messenger. Sometimes when we read the term angel in Scripture, it, it literally refers to a heavenly being who is sent by God to give some message. For example, in the book of Genesis chapter 32, at verse number 1, the Bible says Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. Uh, there's a whole long thing there, but all I want you to understand when you look at that passage is that there are the heavenly beings that are identified as that that, that Jacob observes, that he sees. Sometimes when we read the word angel, it literally refers to simply one of the heavenly beings. But the one identified in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord, as we have here, seems to stand in a class all his own. That he stands out different than 
some of the others. Now let's look at a few verses together. If you have your Bible, you may turn to the book of Genesis chapter 16 at verse number 10. In Genesis chapter 16 at verse number 10, the Bible says, beginning, the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. That's somebody talking to Hagar at this point. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you're pregnant. Now both of those times here in verses 10 and 11, we have the angel of the Lord, the angel of the capital L-O-R-D, the angel of Jehovah, speaking to Hagar. That verse number 11 says, The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Now look at verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. May I ask you a question tonight? Who was speaking to her? The angel of the Lord. What did she call the one who was speaking to her? Verse number 13. You are a God. Angels are not gods, are they? In the normal sense, when we look at angels, matter of fact, if you go to the book of Revelation, in other passages, there are angels where men began to worship, and they say, get up. We're not angels. I mean, we're not to be worshipped. Worship God. You see, this angel of the Lord, as we mentioned here, seems to be in a class all his own, and she calls this angel of the Lord God. Look at the book of Exodus, chapter 22, or chapter 3, if you will, Let me catch up here on the screen for you. Exodus chapter 3. Let's begin reading in verse number 2. In Exodus chapter 3, at verse number 2, the Bible says, The angel of the Lord. There's that term again. The angel of the Lord appeared to him. Appeared to who? Appeared to Moses. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Now remember, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see... God called to him out of the bush. Now back up in verse number 2, the angel of the Lord was speaking to him. In verse number 4, the Bible says, Clearly God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. 
Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. You see, this angel of the Lord that we're talking about seems to stand out, doesn't he? The angel of the Lord is the one who's identified as speaking, calling to Moses out of the bush, but he identifies himself very clearly as God. And so as we look at that, you know, it should bring some things to our mind. When we think about what is said here in regard to this, we begin to question Is this angel of the Lord, this messenger of the Lord, is that really God speaking? Go back to our passage in the book of Judges, chapter 2. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and he said, I, the angel of the Lord said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore, I swore, to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. What does that sound like to you? And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. The angel of the Lord is the one who's making those statements. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. They shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. You see, it seems that we have the angel of the Lord identified as God. Hold those thoughts. Look at Exodus chapter 23, verses 20 and 21. The Bible says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way. It's talking to the Israelites there. And bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. God's name, God's authority, God's power was in the one that God said, Jehovah said, I will send before you. Again, identified as an angel. Who was that? In the book of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, Paul says this, Speaking about the Israelites of the Old Testament and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. It seems that we have the second person of the Godhead identified as the angel of the Lord. Just as much deity as the Father and as the Holy Spirit, but he had a part 
in God's work. Even before he was born into this world as a little baby. He didn't just start at the time that he was born. He already existed and always had. In the beginning God created, or in the beginning was the word rather, John, let me get the right uh, chapter there. And John chapter uh, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Who was that word? Verse 14 very clearly says that word became flesh, dwelled among us. Who was it? Jesus. By the way, when God, going back to that one that I almost started quoting, in the beginning God created the heavens of the earth. Do you remember what's happening when he gets ready to create man? There's a discussion going on in heaven. Let us make man in our image. It is quite probable that we're reading words from the one who would become the Son of Man, Jesus, identified in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord visited them. And we read what he said to them. And because of what the angel of the Lord said, the Israelites wept. Because they were directly told by God that they had disobeyed him, displeased him, and no longer enjoyed the same protection from him that they had previously enjoyed. I will no longer drive them out from before you. It promised to help them. Deuteronomy chapter 7 at verse 2 says this, And when the Lord your God uh, gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. In chapter 1, we're introduced to what the people were doing. They had subdued the land, but now they were going to take possession of it. They, they needed to get the rest of the folks out of the way, but what did they do? In a lot of cases, as we've already stated tonight and talked about more in detail last week, what they did was this. They made covenants with them. They subjected some to slavery. And some of them they just left alone. No wonder when the angel of the Lord came, he said, you didn't do what I told you to do. Look at another passage of Scripture in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days you live on the earth. What are the statutes? You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. 
shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillar and burn their Asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. Not only were they to get rid of the people, but they were also to get rid of the places where they worshipped. What we've learned is the Lord accuses them of doing neither. The angel of the Lord said, you didn't do any of that. And so as you look at that and you see what's going to happen. Look at Numbers 33, verse 55. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them who you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you live. He says much the same there in Judges chapter number 2 as well. But look at Joshua 23, verse 13. Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. No wonder they wept when they had a visit from the angel of the Lord. No wonder they wept. God says, you have disobeyed me, you have disappointed me, and now you will no longer enjoy the same protection that you have been given before. That brings me to another little point that you see there in this chapter. If you notice there in this chapter, God raises a really good question. What is this you have done? Uh, That's found in verse uh, number 2 of chapter 2. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? Remember back there in verse number 1, the Bible says, God said, I will never break my covenant with you. Everybody see that? God made the promise, didn't he? Numbers 23, at verse number 19, the Bible says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he, not, he will not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? No, God's not a man. He doesn't lie. He doesn't change his mind. In Titus chapter 1, at verse 2, Paul writes, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. God's not a liar. Hebrews chapter 6 at verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled, who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. I don't know if you got this or not. God's not a man. He doesn't lie. 
God doesn't lie. God cannot lie because it's impossible for him to lie. But God said, I will never break my covenant with you. That's what he said to the people on the day that he came and met with them at Bochum. There is no doubt in my mind that God, Jehovah, will assuredly meet his part of every covenant that he has ever made. So if there's any failure in its perfect fulfillment, it's not the fault of God but in this case, the fault of Israel. What is this you have done? If they didn't obey God, God said they would perish from off the land. Joshua 23:16 If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you and go and serve other gods and bow down to them then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you What a loaded question God asked What is this you have done. Premillennialism, the idea of some thousand year reign of Christ on earth, dispensationalism, those things are based on a false notion that the Israelites will one day be returned and restored to the promised land. Hal Lindsey in his book, written a long time ago now, back in, the, in 1970, the book, The Late Great Planet Earth, made this statement. He said, The same prophets who predicted the worldwide exile and persecution of the Jews also predicted their restoration as a nation. Went on to say, This restoration was to come about in the general time of the climactic seven-year countdown and its finale, the personal appearance of the Messiah to deliver the new state from destruction. Folks, denominations the world over base their hope of Israel being returned to, the, to their land and God coming down, or Christ coming down and ruling on the earth for a thousand years. They base their hope on a false notion, the false notion that the children of Israel always have had and always are entitled to that land over there. Our own government has in part in years gone by based much of its policy in regard to the nation that's now called Israel on a false notion. Israel today may be a great strategic partner and ally of ours as a nation, but it's not because of any future promise of land being returned to them as 
a promise of God. Because way back there at Bochum, on a day that caused the children of Israel to weep and name the place where they were, the place of weeping, the angel of the Lord said, What is this you've done? They broke the covenant. And when covenants are broken, they're broken for both sides. God wasn't the one who did it. What is this you have done? What a statement made so, so long ago. In the book of Romans, chapter 2, 28 and 29, we know that God now has new children. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The nation of Israel served its part in getting the Messiah into the world. But now we become the children of God in a different way, not because we're born in the family of Abraham, the earthly family of Abraham, but in a different way. But now that faith has come, Galatians 3.25 says, now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. You see, Christ brought about the spiritual kingdom, the spiritual people of God. Long before he had asked those people they had that place on that day, what have you done? They didn't drive the people out. They left their altars. Those people became thorns in their sides, barbs in their eyes, depending upon which place you're reading from. And from that day forward, they kept going farther and farther and farther away from God. What is this you have done? There's no place in Scripture, none in the New Testament that promotes or points to any time that God would give a physical land back to a group of people. But it's filled with God giving us a new land an eternal one in which we who are faithful, born into the family of God, become Abraham's offspring, faithful offspring, because we've been baptized into his family, thus being born into his family, will one day enjoy a place we call heaven. Like I said, there's a lot to be found in those first five verses of the book of Judges, chapter number two. 
A lot of things we didn't get to talk about tonight. May pick up some of them in our next lesson as we go on through the chapter, refer back to them. But there was a place of weeping because the angel of the Lord, God himself, came and he pointed out that they had disobeyed him and he asked a question. What is this you've done? When you stand before God on the day of judgment and you offer up your excuses for not having obeyed him, will God look back at you and say, what is this you have done? You'll never have this land that I've now promised you. You'll never be able to have a part in it. When you stand before God and say, well, God, you know, I, I refuse to be baptized because I think that might have been working, you know, to get my salvation or whatever it may be, some excuses that sometimes are made. Will God look back and say, what is this you've done? Folks, if it gets that far, I will assure you, that place too will be called Bochum, a place of weeping. Because those who are cast into the eternal realm of punishment are cast into a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't want that in my life, in my eternity. It may be tonight that you have questions as to what to do in order to become a Christian. I'd love to sit down with you and talk God's Word. It may be tonight that you understand that there's a need for baptism in your life. It may be tonight that you've done that, but you sort of turned your back on God and you need to come back to Him. If you need to respond to his invitation tonight, I hope you'll come right now as together we stand and sing. There's a stranger at the door.